Welcome back to Streaming Banshees, your TV book club on the internet. This is Beep, and today's podcast is a continuation of our discussion of Hometown Sha 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 episode 15, which we call part two of Hometown Cry Cry Cry. So everyone, make sure you have your tissues, make sure you have your chocolate. Maybe we'll give out addresses at the end. You can send us some. I feel like we're going to deserve it after this. So just a reminder, we're a rewatch podcast. We've seen the whole series. You should have two spoilers abound. You have been warned. You can find us on Twitter at TV Banshees, and you can also find us at Streaming Banshees on Instagram and on Tumblr, in case for some reason everything, anything ever happens to the Twitter. I am joined, as always, by the lovely Cece. Hey, guys. You can find me in most of all of the places at A Capital Check. And we would like to welcome back today for part two, Aaron Brown is back. Welcome, my dear. Please remind people where they can find you. My name is Erin Brown, and you can find me online. I have a website called misconception.net that you can find, or you can find me at, at Speedmouse on Twitter. So that's me. All right, guys, are you ready to dig out all the wisdom teeth? I'm going to be so gummy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to spare you the real life story of having my wisdom teeth taken out and just say, yep, let's do this. I actually, I don't think we originally intended to break episode 15 into two parts, but we obviously had a lot to say about it. And I actually like the way that this worked out because for the second half of our podcast on this episode, we get to break down essentially what are six conversations. And I was thinking about how much of the, for the last 14 episodes, we have talked about how writer Shin Ha-un has been exploring miscommunication in all kinds of ways, like people talking past each other or not hearing what is said or not listening to what isn't said or an inability to open up. And this episode is six cathartic conversations that fully air out the past. People say what they mean. People say what they have held back out loud. And they all come out on the other side of it, of these conversations with a better understanding of the past and themselves. And I was wondering, just before we, we dive into these six conversations, if the two of you had any thoughts about how rare it is that the dramatic climax of a television show consists of people talking. I think it's it's such a it's such a beautiful thing, but at the same time, it's also shocking how impactful it is. You know, so so often we we look for that climax to be death or an event or something like that, and I I love the fact that human growth and that un that kind of human unraveling that's scary and painful but it's for the good and these these amazing points of human growth that happen when people are brave with their own hearts and their own thoughts it's so refreshing I think it's one of the things like you know people often ask the question why they think something like Ted Lasso has been so impactful I think the same heart really exists here is this idea of there's no more kind of wild 
uncharted water than the human heart. And realistically, we've spent all of these episodes connecting with the hearts of these people and uh, we've spent ages, we've, we've been knocking at their walls, we've been going through all of these things with these people and so, yeah, I just, I'm in love with the fact that their growth and their courage is the thing that's the climax here for us. That's so special. Beep, how about you? I, I mean, this is almost an unheard of. In television. And it's interesting because you do have the death, obviously, at the end of the episode, and there will be ramifications from that, but it's not the focus. And it is organic and it even comes after a conversation of its own. Shin Ha Un did a really good job of bringing essentially everybody at the same time to a place of reckoning in very difficult very human ways. Yeah. I I mean, and the topics range from divorce to mental health to attributing accountability and responsibility and guilt in the wake of, of people attempting suicide or dying too soon or coming out very bravely about your sexuality. I mean, it it runs the gamut of things that we all have to deal with. And a lot of these conversations are very, it's really just two people talking. And yet I was like hanging on every word and really feeling how either emotional or, or brave, you know, like that we watch so many shows or at least the three of us have watched so many shows together where courage and bravery, right, is with dramatic acts or swords or like you name it, right? But this is people bravely going out on a limb to be known um, authentically and maybe sometimes showing the parts of themselves they're afraid other people won't like or maybe they don't like about themselves. And I was just, I, I just think it's really remarkable. I mean, there's a lot that's remarkable about the show and what it seems like it is on the surface and where the places where Shen Ha Un takes us. Let's dive into these six conversations. One of them is obviously a continuation of the conversation between Dushik and Heijen that we're going to get to sort of the part two of their conversation as they're sitting in the lighthouse. Conversation number two, let's take that one first. And that is the little boy, Ijun, finding out that his divorced parents are getting back together and very much like a little Dushik. He's a boy who has held all of his emotions in. He finally lets them out. Talk to me about sort of how this unfolds, both in things never go according to plan in life and how he reacts to his parents getting back together. I think one of the really amazing things about kids that so often we look at is the way that they're so unfiltered in the way that they react to stuff. And what makes him such a beautiful character in this is he's such a contrast to all the adults that have, you know, that have been around him who are kind of holding things back and not talking about stuff and not having those honest conversations. But this is a little boy who 
the whole way through, he he wears his heart on his sleeve. Like I often go right back to the start, you know, where there's like the there's the hamster that they're that they're in tears about, and you know the. I, I think this is a little kid who just feels everything and you look at it, – it's so important, I think, that you draw that comparison to Dushik who is an adult who has just held these things in throughout the course of his life, his own childhood trauma that he's never really – I don't think he's ever really fully expressed. And so in some ways we get – this beautiful thing of going when when kids are allowed to be honest about what they're feeling when they're feeling it there's so much we can actually learn from their authenticity in that and I found this so moving because you realize that so often kids are just not that they're treated as sort of a side story like their emotions aren't as important but you know sometimes they can be discounted you know that they're a kid you know they don't maybe have the emotional vocabulary to deal with something like an adult does. But we've seen throughout the show the adults don't deal necessarily well with everything that they're feeling. So I I love the fact that this little boy, his emotional journey has been he's been through is as important and valid and moving as all of the adults around him. And the way that he lets it out, I think it's so important that we see that that kind of unfiltered emotion when he lets out his relief, his maybe his grief for what he's missed out on while they've been apart, his hope for what happens. In, like he's feeling all of those things at once. And I think there's something so profound about just seeing him feel everything and watch the adults be really impacted by the honesty of him just being completely vulnerable. So I had so much, and I, I kept looking at this this kid and thinking, "What a great actor!" You know, to let all of the, like that's huge. Yes, absolutely. yeah. I was I was so moved by him, and I just I just like I said, like I, I really love the fact that this is a kid's story that was treated with the same tenderness and authenticity and vulnerability as the adults around him and with the same level of validity. I think that's really important. Right. And I mean, if you think about the theme of you never know what's going on in somebody else's life or somebody else's head, he always seems so mature for his age, right? And so his parents would be bickering when he says later on, you know, I always wanted, I wanted to always eat together, not just at on my birthday or when I won an award at school. And we kind of, the first time you watch, you just took for granted that he was this very serious and mature little boy. But what was going on inside is that all he wanted was to be able to have a meal with his family. And yet it was only on special occasions. And even then, right, like he always seemed like maybe the most mature one at the table when his two parents were bickering back and forth. And I think it's so interesting that, Aaron, to pick up on the point that you brought up, that that the child's experience through the divorce is treated with as much respect as what the two parents went through. Because divorce like death, makes children grow up faster. Oh, it really does. And I think too, like you look at all the adult, like you look at the, this is a show very much that deals in parallel journeys. And so you look at the adults over time that have had things happen in their lives 
that they haven't spoken about that that they really should have that have fermented over time and then what that fermented damage does in the long run we we kind of get to see maybe a f- we we get to see a future about what that might have looked like for that little boy had he never expressed his feelings we get to see these grown up men with trauma who are not who who it takes them a really long time to finally voice the things that are hurting them but after a lot of damage has been done to them internally and a lot of damage to relationships and so that's one of the reasons i think he is so important because he's he's so open with with how he feels and it's i just think yeah there's there's a lot of courage for a little kid and you know for him he doesn't he doesn't want anything that's elaborate you know he's not like saying i wish i'd gone to disneyland with my parents no no he wants what this show has shown us you know time yeah. and time again eating yeah. sharing food together as a family exactly. as a community and yeah. he just wants simple things that's the thing you know he he all of them realistically they just want the simple deeply human relationship things not physical I think the thing too that this shows though and I like that you brought up that his his thoughts his feelings his inner life and his thought process about the divorce is just as important in the show as his parents but what that does contrast is the fact that neither of them in their mess and it's not blaming it's just acknowledging, have felt that way about him. Neither of his parents have truly given him that space to have his own grief because they've been caught, so caught up in their own situation. Yeah. But, and the, what, I, what I love about sort of the culmination of this conversation is Ha Zhang says, I'm sorry that I did not understand how you felt, that an adult apologizes to a child because that should be a two-way street, right? I mean, children often have to apologize to their parents, but it can go both ways. Not only were there these emotional consequences for their son, but also that they were understandably so caught up in their own feelings and grief about their divorce that beep as you were saying that 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 he didn't have that space because he felt like he had to hold it all in for them and that's so real right i mean i think if you talk to anyone who went through their parents getting divorced it's it's like they learned more quickly than maybe the rest of us how human their parents are but then Ha Zheng sort of like if we think about all of these conversations where things are aired out, but then sort of accountability is is balanced or redistributed, she says, that's not your basically, that's not your job as a kid. You shouldn't have to be the one worried about holding back, right? That's not your like I want to take that burden off your shoulders and that's not your job as a kid. Your job as a kid is to feel what you need to feel and say that out loud. Um because he was holding that all in for them because he didn't want to cause more sadness for his parents in the midst of their divorce to let them know how it was impacting him. 
And so if there's sort of this lovely resolution at the end of it where adults say they're sorry and say, that's not your job as a child, right? That's our job to worry. Your job as an eight-year-old boy is to be an eight-year-old boy. It really is. And I think too, like I, I think often about the audience perspective in watching something like that and how many kids who go through being a child of divorce, how much that would probably resonate with them in a really powerful way. Like I often think back to, it sounds like a weird parallel to draw, but I think of that scene out of Goodwill Hunting, you know, where Robin Williams is telling Matt Damon's character, it's not your fault. And and he just absolutely breaks down. And, and I remember sitting in a theatre watching that and thinking there was some stuff going on in my life that I heard that and that shattered me because I, I felt like someone was giving me permission to go, it's not my fault. And in, in an interesting way, I think about people for whom this little boy would really resonate as adults and what a powerful thing it is, like you say, to hear not only an adult apologise to a child as a parent to a child but also human being to human being. I'm sorry for how my lack of awareness and what was going on with me meant that I didn't see you were in this pain and I'm sorry. And it's so profound in the way that it's articulated and it's just so, it's so real. And I like the fact that this conversation, it doesn't happen in a living room. It happens outside. And I think there's something quite profound in that idea of everything being out in the open physically and emotionally. I thought that was just a really beautiful touch for the scene to occur there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because again, as Beef says, there's so much that the, the living room conversation goes as many living room conversations with kids do. Which is the parents sit back to have the talk and the kid's like, okay, great. So now can I go? And you're like, that's it? That's all you're going to say? <laughs> and it comes out as this like, emo- like the dam bursts. And he, like, it, it's really, it was really, this little boy, I think, has a bright future in front of him because it was really, to see this, you know, it's almost like seeing Dushik cry in the next episode. To see someone who has held so much in for so long that the dam finally breaks and it you know in a healthy way that brings us to the next conversation and that is between Cho Hee and Ha Jung and Cho Hee is recovering from literally having her wisdom teeth taken out and she comes to see Ha Jung to buy some porridge. And Hajang says to her, it's best just to dig it out or the pain will worsen, which is obviously echoing the advice that Heijin gave Cho Hee. Can we first talk about how the conversation that Cho Hee initiates is so brave and also one that she did not have to do other than for herself, if that makes sense. This is her choice to, to bring all of this up to Ha Zhang, and she did not have to. I think in some ways 
yet no she didn't have to like there wasn't something technical that meant I have to bring this out into the open but by the same token I think because like you say you know all these important conversations the the need to be truthful and the need to be authentic compels her to have to be honest this is an episode of people going I have no choice but to be exactly like what you were saying before be known like I think as human beings that's one of the things that scares us the most when people ask us what's terrifying it's easy to say oh you know get eaten by a shark or do something like that or my house burning down or something like that but the thing that scares us the most is being known being fully known in front of the key people that are in our lives that have impacted us the most because we know that there's often a cost to being fully known by someone will they still want us will they still treat us the same way in their hearts and minds and for her to just go you are worth the risk of me being completely honest about this it's so it's it's somehow incredibly brave and incredibly moving and raw and cathartic but I don't know about you guys I, I found I found it very gentle as well like that was what I was moved by I was almost moved by the kindness and the softness and the humanity of it yeah so I, I it was one of those ones I don't know if you found this when I was watching it I I sort of found myself crying without realizing I was I just, I just sort of found myself being a bit choked up and being like what a what an insane thing like it's a, it's a terrifying thing to sort of admit your heart in any case but yeah this was just it was so bravely done and with such tenderness that yeah I just thought it was one of the best I thought it was one of the best scenes of the whole episode actually it's interesting because it's I 100% agree with you both about the issue of you know being known and wanting to be known but I also feel like there's a little bit of this from Cho Hee to Ha Jung that's a gift to her because you know for for her relationship with her husband yeah yeah because like, it, it begins with airing it out have been happening yeah they these have this didn't happen so i want to make your you know your life and your thought process easier and then of course that so easily segues into that she cares about her and then how she has always cared about her yeah because it it if it's two things. It's airing out the past. So what Ha Zhang may, like, what she may not ever know is the role that Cho He played in going to her ex-husband and basically being like, you got to get your stuff together <laughs> and you got to, you got to swing big this time. But for their relationship, both the two, those two women and the three of them, right, which we saw in those flashbacks was so lovely. And maybe Cho He's first real community, when you think back to the way that her mother spoke to her and, and the fear invoked even by the brother's name, right? In order to get that back, she needs to air out what the past was about and that that there was never anything going on with him and it's it's almost just like it's interesting right because it's like then she goes a step further not only to be known but almost as this proof no the person i actually cared about was you 
which the thing about it, when you say that it's a gift beep, what I, what is so sort of bittersweet about this is that on the one hand, Hajang was this sort of taken for granted best friends to lovers with her ex-husband and now who she's back with. But she was always that first love that could never be for Cho Hee. And so it's like a gift in many ways, right? Because Cho Hee was like, no, you always, you always looked beautiful when they're talking about the eye cream, right? It's like this really bittersweet, you were that person that I put up on the pedestal. Tell me your thoughts about when you talk about like how gentle this scene is, the way Ha Zhang, it's like she can't, she doesn't flat out at first say I knew, but she has this kind of smiling look and then show he has to come to that conclusion herself. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I, I do. I think what I sort of found amazing about that is like, even if the awareness isn't a full thing, I think on some on some human level, we we are aware of the kind of energy that people bring into our space, and and I I I like that because you know that would have been a very that would have been something that Hojong has has been holding on to as well, you know, in the sense that because she's had all tied up bitterness about this this woman that she thinks has has been you know with with her husband that she still may or may not have feelings for I don't like you know it it was and she's been carrying around this this knotted burden of anxiety about Chohi and I think one of the things that's kind of really strong here is like I I like the fact that Chohi gets that acknowledgement you know that someone was aware of her and aware of the authentic her even just the tiniest bit because you know I imagine she probably kind of being honest with Hojung about this there would have been an element of feeling like she was being out in the open about the closest thing to her heart for the first time kind of like she'd been hiding in plain sight until now but it's a little bit like it's this tiny nod of Hojung almost kind of saying I, 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 I sensed I had this tiny sense here but what I what I sort of love about this scene is in the fact that in the same way Ho Zhang's kind of she's unburdened her own son, that Cho He's done something really beautiful here. Like like you say, you know, she Ho Zhang's got got no idea really about the massive role that Cho He's played in in her getting back together with her husband. And she's also Ho Zhang's also been carrying around this a bit of bitterness and frustration and competitiveness and combativeness <laughs> about this other woman. And I love the fact that Chohin being brave, she's not only unburdening herself, she's also kind of saying to Ho Zhang, you don't need to carry around this burden of being frustrated with me anymore. Here's, here's why. It's because it's you that I cared about. And I just love this the fact that these are two human beings who are going they're finally kind of saying to each other, I see you. And that that quote that you were talking about, how we're so gorgeous, kind-hearted, friendly and polite, like that's that's the thing that I think all of us desire when we want someone to see us. But 
we always anticipate the worst. And so I just, I loved the way that this conversation was so gentle, but it was quite a profound unburdening for both of these women. Yeah. 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 Especially what I think is beautiful about the way that it unfolds is that it's of course from Ha Zhang that we that comes the the one of I think one of the wisest pieces of writing in this show, you know, what is easy for some is difficult for others. And Ha Zhang is a character who gets that more than most, because there's things that have been difficult for her to talk about. And so she gave her friend the space to essentially come out on her own terms and her own timeline. But then what she says to her is, Erin, all of those compliments, right? But despite all that, you looked lonely. I wanted to take care of you. And although I couldn't reciprocate your feelings in the same way, I liked you back then as well, and I still do. And so what she's essentially saying is, I always knew you and always accepted you. And I still do. Isn't that a beautiful thing? God, it's a gift to Cho Hee, right? I mean, because Cho Hee is approaching this conversation essentially thinking that this is going to be a surprise to Ha Zhang. And so the mm-hmm. gift is, you know, I always knew and I always loved you anyway. Now, you know, not the way that Cho Hee loved her, but as a friend and accepted her for who she is, which is no small thing, both given the real world and also what we saw of Cho He's life before, right? I mean, she's essentially like another Dushik in Ganjin through her mother dying in estrangement with her brother because of her sexuality does not have a biological family. So Ganjin is her adopted family too. It's a risk to come out in this place that she's moved back to. Oh, it is. And it's, it's, it's a risk to come out in a space where, you know, like one of the sweet things that we love about this town is that, you know, they are gossipy, they are talkers, they, you know, they they have a little rumour mill about each other that's just constantly functioning. And this is this is a character that, like, Chohi ultimately goes through this point of um, – having the person that has most impacted her heart over all of this time say, I know and you've told me in your fullness now everything that you needed to say and I know it all now and I still I still care, like whatever frustrations there's been, it's like I know everything and I love you anyway and I love you and I, I, I love you in your fullness like there there's something so deeply hum- like there's a longing built into that and a, and a met longing that in the sense that you realize you know Chohi's not going to there's there's not going to be this flourishing love story here with this this woman that she's she's held so close to her heart for the whole time i love the idea that there's this there's this fullness of acceptance of, and like you say, you know, this is a this is a show about of the family you choose for yourself and the people you choose for yourself, and you want you want to be truly who you are in that space without feeling like you have to 
temper it in order to be enough. And yeah, I just, like I say, I think this is probably one of the best and most beautiful scenes written in this episode because it is so, it's it's just this unraveling of emotion and, but it's like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's almost like a kite being let loose and there's a string on the end of it. Just going, don't worry, you're tethered, you're okay, I've, I've still got you. Mm. And you can fly authentically as who you are now, but just know that you're tethered and I haven't let you go. That's, oh, golly, it chokes me out just thinking about it. <laughs> oh, that's such beautiful imagery. I, yeah, I mean, Hometown Cha-Cha-Cha is a dozen love stories, some romantic, some between an 80-year-old woman and a 30-year-old man, or between these two childhood friends. And they walk away from this conversation and Ha Zhang is able to know, I mean, she knew, right, on some level, but knows that she's so important to Cho He that she was willing to take this risk. And then Cho He is able to come to an end of a conversation and say, thank you for accepting me for who I am. And if she hadn't have taken the risk, she never would have known. So before we move to sort of the next uh, beep, I use that word reckoning. And I think it, the conversation between Dushik and Doha is, is the fullest reckoning we really get in this episode. I wanted to take the flashback with Doha's mother first, because that's really sort of the, the past that we're then going to untangle in this conversation. Any sort of initial thoughts about the way this conversation is framed? And while the act of sort of atonement is in one direction, it's a conversation that is very much one person saying their narrative and the other person just sitting there and taking it. What sort of made this partially a bit less like a, a conversation. Like I think the other the other conversations that we've, we've looked at in this episode have very much been kind of two sided. There's there's been parts of it. This is probably the one in which I would argue there's the most imbalance of of stuff that's of stuff that's coming out. What I found really interesting about this particular relationship is like when you look at it. Not necessarily in the context of the story, but like you, you, you look at it sort of in the nature of what's happened and the level of like genuine hatred that's existed about, you know, about what's happened here is, you know, I think, I think of that line, T, that you were talking about, you know, I wondered millions of times what kind of life you were living in my head. You were still shamelessly continuing to harm others. This is, this is too or not so much two people, but one person in particular who has had an absolutely black and white version in their head of someone else. And in that version, that other person is not only a villain, but their actions and, you know, for, for Doha, his, his anger has not only become a thing that he's felt that he needs to let out, it is actually become part of his identity that 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 
his family victimhood, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think there's a huge reconciliation kind of going on here between the identity he's adopted for himself of a righteously angry man, a righteously angry son, um, a, a member of a family, and having to let go of maybe this idea of this villain that's in my head um, is actually not the person that exists. And what's fascinating in the way that this structured is he's having that reckoning in front of that perceived villain. And so are we. Right. And and so are we, exactly. And, you know, and Jusik is just sitting there realistically just taking it. And you realise there's an element of that in which you, you see Jusik in his silence, there's almost like this kind of, it, it's almost glaring in the way that it's almost like I'm I'm taking this as my punishment. I deserve this. Yeah, because the parallel in both conversations is that Dushik does not explain himself or what happened. So when he's talking to the mother and the mother says, God, one of the most ironic lines, right? Is this how smart and wealthy people take responsibility? I mean, Dushik may have in the moment accrued wealth by virtue of his job for a few years, but we know where he comes from, right? Absolutely. And yeah, and and he says, you can think however you like. I mean, basically, he has no interest, desire, or will to defend himself in this situation. He is on his knees. He takes her torrent of i mean you disgust me right it's like a torrent of verbal abuse i mean i understand the woman like like his young's widow this is coming from a place of grief right mm. she doesn't know him so he fits sort of an, an archetype of oh you're just one of these you know private equity guys or fund guys who worked in this building that walked back and forth, you know, behind in front of my security guard husband and you took advantage of him. Right. And that's the narrative she has in her head and he does not correct it. Although, I mean, the fact that he's there on his knees offering money, I don't know. Like I find it to be a really difficult scene to watch, but she withheld all of that information from her son. So, for all of these years, Doha has never known that this villain in his family's narrative, this Hong Jushik, was the one who paid for his father's hospital, was the one that paid off his student loans, is the financial benefactor for why he has the life that he has, like why he was able to get this job that he, you know, we've been watching for all these episodes that he loves. What are your thoughts on how this conversation is a important one important piece to sort of the origin story of chief hong and his relationship with money i think you you so you so right about um the idea of you know realistically doha has this life because the person who in his head has taken everything from him has secretly been giving him everything. And I think in some ways when people are 
I think when when grief becomes part of your identity and and you know kind of morphs into anger, you know, and I I, I say this, I've I've had moments of my own life where I've had to reckon with I've I've become this. I think it's a human experience. There's there's a certain arrogance that that self righteous anger gives people, and they can behave more flippantly in in kind of the way that they behave towards others and in the way that they value things because everything's like well they, they can have an element of well I you know I've, I've I'm glad I've got this I've, I've been through this terrible thing you know I should have something good I think what's really interesting is when you contrast that with Jusik who realistically like yes he lived this this life of you know a hedge fund manager and he lived in he lived the suit and tie life in the city but when he's just moving around the village he's a very physically lives a very simple life I think it's I think it's just really fascinating watching Doha kind of un unravel in this particular way because everything he's thought he's entitled to has suddenly realized he's he's realized it's been gifted to him essentially in yeah in, and he and he, yeah he has to put it together he does and you know and i think too there's there's a couple of reckonings that are happening here as well because it's not just with Jusik not in any way being the obnoxious terrible person and completely black and white villain that he had him as is in in his head in coming to the same reckoning about him, he also has to reckon with his mother and he has to reckon with her weaponizing him in some way, like using using her grief and everything to kind of perpetuate her anger and all this kind of stuff. So that's really confronting and it's just like he's, he's feeling everything and it's, it's funny, like I keep, I keep going back I keep going back to like Aijun, you know, this little boy letting everything out and his parents being honest with you and, you know, having having his own mother say, I'm sorry that I made you carry this burden. What we're seeing here with Doha is what that looks like as an adult when that conversation isn't happening when it needs to. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's a, that, that's a really powerful parallel for me here because we can see – it's it's like a sliding doors moment. We can see what happens when it happens, like that conversation, scary as it is, happens for the good, and what happens when that conversation is left to ferment over decades. Right. It's you know the line Bora says, "Why do adults lie so much?" Mm. <laughs> I mean, this his mother lied by omission, right? She told. Well, no, actually, she she lied by omission, but she flat out did lie. She told him all the money came from the insurance company. She did. And the thing is, is she had to know, she had to know what the impact would be on her son of lying to him, you know. Or maybe it was coming from such grief and anger that she wasn't going to give any credit to Hong yeah. Jushik, right? I mean, she wants to rip that money up. That's how angry she is. Yeah, she does. And and I think too, like she that's that's the thing is when you when you realize how blinding anger and 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 grief can make you that you're not making great decisions from that space. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, I th- 
It is. I mean, one of the things that I think is really interesting is, you know, we see these two, a conversation in the past and a conversation in the present. Doha, he, you know, he goes to Dushik. The reason why this conversation is even happening is essentially you can trace it back one way or another to the way that Dushik has actually lived his life and through his actions. Because that hangnail that Doha keeps picking at is because the chief Hong that he got to know so well is a wonderful person. And because Director Xi is basically filling in the story because Director Xi, he has some information that Doha didn't, but he also knows that Chief Hong is a really good person because he's gotten to know him as well, right? And so the whole thing that even makes this reckoning possible is the way that Dushik has lived his life. Because both both Doha and Director Xi have to kind of put all the, these pieces of the puzzle together because something is bothering them because this story doesn't fit with the man that they have gotten to know. It's a really interesting thing as well because Xi is is a really is a really interesting character to have in the middle here because because of the way that he acts in the middle of this we we sort of forget that he has had terrible things happen to him as well you know in 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 the sense of like you know he's he's seen he's seen some pretty awful things happen here that he may have had his own opportunity to form really strong opinions and be bitter about um, in his own life, not necessarily about Dushik, but like the things that he's gone through. And my grandmother used to have this really good saying about you can, the things in your life can either make you bitter or better. And I, I love that G is just kind of like, even for the hard things that I've seen in my life, the resulting way that I choose to behave in the world is going, what do I know of this situation and how can I make it better? And I love the way that you, you're so right about Dushik in the sense that he he doesn't have to kind of articulate I'm innocent of this or anything. He just lives his life and lets that truth speak for himself. And yeah, I just I just think that's really interesting that 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 difference between G and and Doha is you know yeah one lets it make him one one lets his 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 hard and painful life experiences make him awful <laughs> and judgmental yeah. and the other one's just like what can i learn so th- the conversation the, the rest of the conversation once once doha is kind of has this light bulb moment slash confirmation okay so it was you they these two men really kind of, I think in a really honest and at times raw way, really kind of sift through who's accountable for what, who's sorry for what, and where, like sort of what buckets of accountability should I place things in, if that makes sense. Because this conversation kind of goes back and forth. And, and I think it's really probably the most, as opposed to the one with the widow, and, and we'll we'll get to that, it's very satisfying in that both men basically want to blame themselves for everything and for each other 
say, wait, hold up. That's not actually your fault. So it begins with Doha basically a little bit of like a kind of, what did you think? Because we're poor, money would solve everything. And it's almost like you can hear his mother talking, right? Like the echoes of his mother in those words. And then Dushik is basically like, no, because the last thing your father and I talked about was family. And I know he wanted to buy you a nice suit for your job interview. And Doha has to be like, wait a minute. So then he must have really been friends with my dad if he knows all of that, right? But then Doha spirals and is like, then this is all my fault because of I was drinking and I was being lazy and my dad said I would show up to interviews and I looked poor. So he did this all because of me. And so everything he did is my fault. Can you guys talk to me sort of about how Dushik pulls him out of that spiral and kind of redistributes the accountability? I think what's, what's interesting is Doha kind of has to – Brene Brown has this lovely term that I I love, which is emotional vocabulary. And when she's when she talks about people, if in any way their emotional vocabulary is is stunted, they're not going to react always well or appropriate in situations. And to be fair, this is a huge moment. This this whole man's image of his own life has the framework has has just been tipped on its head. And so the fact that he goes the whole opposite direction and ends up blaming himself, this this trauma of realising his whole life has been tipped on its head, that's fresh, that's brand new. And I think one of the things about Jushik, it's not it's not necessarily because, like I imagine it's part of it, he, he wants to do right by the son of this man, that he has had a massive part in, in the life of this family. I think... It's also part of Jushik's character. He's he's a helper. That's just part of who he is. And so when he's looking at Doha, he's not looking at a man that he hates. He's not looking at a man that has caused him, you know, some kind of grief and he wants nothing to do with it. He sees like it's like trauma recognises trauma. And Jushik's nature as a human being for whatever his other faults, is to be kind and to just go, I see in you what I feel in myself. And so he, I think he, he goes, I can't let you take on the full burden of responsibility here because I know that in some way I played a part of it. So don't kind of take away from me the part of this situation that I need to be emotionally accountable for. That's still mine to hold on to but I see in you what you're taking on now and I, 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 how would you put it? Like it's it's like going this isn't yours to shoulder alone. Um, and, yeah, and I, I loved that idea because you realise that there's something, you realise the physical heaviness of what these men have been carrying between them and separately these separate burdens on their backs. And I, I just there's this really kind of profound moment of watching that weight distribute and a, a, a tiny amount of ease begin in both men. You don't see it in full, you know, you, you, that's, that's a thing that will come, I hope, later. But, yeah, it's a, be- it's a beautiful yeah. moment of going we're both in this and we're both 
it's, it's going to be okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because what he flat, I mean, so when Doha goes through that like spiral, if if we've talked about so many times before miscommunication, the words are quite direct in how it goes back and forth, right? In, in terms of how the dialogue's written, because Dushik tells him that's not true. You know, that is not true that this is all your fault. He gives him a gift, which is Doha's father, who has been, you know, in what appears to be a coma or, you know, not really in a communicative state for a very long time. He gives his son this sort of precious memory that, that just comes to him by virtue of this conversation that, you know, your dad used to brag about how smart you were and how proud he was that you graduated from prestigious university. And Doha had never heard that. Like, that's such a gift. But then Dushik is basically like, no, 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 I'm to blame. I failed to grab his hand when he reached out to me. And then the gift that Doha gives him is no, it is not your fault. I know that it's not. I just needed someone to blame. That is like remarkable honesty and sort of recalibrating the accountability and guilt from this whole mess. Can can we also just, even though, I mean, it is a gigantic situation, so I don't mean to take anything from it, but can we also just applaud, I mean, the level of self-awareness he has yes. grasped onto since finding out about this? Yeah. I mean, to go from, you know, everything is you to actually contextualizing everything, seeing the part his mother played in it, seeing the part that, I mean, his father, I, I hate, I don't want to sit around and, and push blame over there, but ultimately that man made a decision. Multiple ones. Yeah. And the yeah. fallout that occurred, if there's blame to be had, so much of it is on him. But when you see someone or when you have someone who's in that type of position, you know, where then he's he's almost an invalid at that point. I mean, he's, he's struggled so much then since in his mm -hmm. life. You, That's not the guy you want to blame, you know? So right. the uh, the evil hedge fund manager, I mean, perfection, right? That's that's the guy. But for, for Doha to then come back after the the punch and and see, wow, not only did I have you wrong, I had this whole thing wrong. Let me actually reflect to see what part of this, it, not even not even that I need to take responsibility for, but just what part of of having blown it out of proportion to what actually happened. Have I embraced that I now need to like remove from my life? So much. And all of these people are a reminder that I think because you're so right there, like Doha's dad bears a huge amount of responsibility here. And but at the same time, he also he bragged about his son. He's, he's, he cared about he cared about his boy. And so there's that element of thinking all of these people, what they have in common is the idea that good people in bad, complicated situations aren't always able to make great decisions. In fact, they often don't. You know, we were talking before about Doha's mum. She, yes, yeah, she's lied to him and she's admitted the truth, uh, admitted the truth in different situations. She's also in a massive state of grief. 
So there's there's that part of it. There's 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 his father making these financial decisions that are terrible, but he's still someone. He's still a dad who's proud of his son. And there's Doha who's been, you know, mad and angry about what's happened to his dad, but he's also been lied to. And like you say, but you know, as soon as he's become aware of the fact that there is infinitely more to this story than he thought, this it's this wild kind of tipping its the world on its head for him, and so. And but you six the same. It's a good person in a really tough situation, not always making emotionally great decisions, and seeing all of these people go. You can be good, but be imperfect. There's something really profound in that, and I love that about this because it means that everybody watching in the audience, we can all relate to that. Because well, you know, and both of them coming from opposite sides of this. Mm kind of owning their own thing. I, I think what this is does such a good job of showing is that people are just, they're more than one thing. It's yep. just so much more complicated than that. It's this, this whole situation was so reductive mm. when it was first released and there's just, sorry, there's a lot more to it guy. So do you want to actually face that or not? And they both had that, that choice at this point. And then they both chose to face it to face the situation, to face themselves and to really dig into it and figure out how it had been informing their lives and how it should do so going forward. Yeah. And they own, when you say that it's like this big mass, they own the pieces that they should, right? They own the pieces that they actually should be sorry for, right? Or should be held accountable for. Because Doha is like, I needed somebody to blame, right? Because he's somebody who... he. Remember, he punched Dushik in the face and called him horrible things in front of the entire town, right? And so he's basically admitting, like, I needed somebody to blame. But when he then says, why couldn't you have just told him one more time everything could be okay? That's the piece that Dushik wishes he could have back, right? And when 100%. He sa- when he says, I'm sorry, I'm really sorry – that's the piece and the and the thing that's even harder on rewatch is that he's somebody hearing that who has gone through his own suicide attempt and knows what that could mean to have reached out and so it's really painful and kind of raw but th- if there's any piece that truly like if Dushik could have over like that's the piece right where he's like where could I have made a real difference in all of this? And he gets to say that he's sorry for that. Oh, and that's beautiful. And I, I, I love that because it, him owning that, him apologizing for that does not give him any more fault in this. It's just saying, had I been more aware, I would have made a different decision. Right. He's acknowledging I didn't, you know, I didn't pick up the phone and I, I wish that I did. And that's, I mean, I think that's a brilliant acknowledgement. And isn't that, isn't that the most human thing in the world though, is to, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty, and all of us go through those moments in our lives where we go, if I just picked up the phone, if I'd just done this and, um, you know, you can be, you can be sad and you can be sorry that you didn't get the chance to do that. Um, 
and you could have wished you'd have done it and it would it have been helpful if you'd done it yeah maybe it, it would have we don't we don't know if it would have made a massive difference but at the same time I think the powerful thing is here is these guys coming to this reckoning that whatever mistakes I've made it's not that I'm a bad person it's these people realizing these black and white images that they've had of each other in their head that are so clearly defined in one direction of being good or bad in the other are so much more grey than they realise. And you just there's this lovely making space for greyness between these two characters. And I think that is such a beautiful thing between them because, yeah, I, I, I like seeing that you can start to see some of the – I love seeing Jusix kind of need to emotionally self-flagellate just mm. begin to dissipate and he, he stops beating himself over his own back as much. You go, I, it doesn't mean I stop, I, I stop taking accountability for my part in this, but I'm not going to punish myself. I'm going to forgive myself. And this is, and I think that's what makes this moment so powerful. This isn't just necessarily about two people forgiving each other. It's about them forgiving themselves. And it's exactly, and it's said, it's a really important step for the next two conversations that he's going to have one with with his best friend's wife and then the conversations going to have with himself the one piece before we turn to the young's widow coming to town that i just wanted to mention is i thought that there was a really interesting line that the security guard's wife said that i think is part of the chief hong origin story and she says, it's terrifying how much power money has. Chief Hong, who never really, you know, at first admits that he wasn't even really comfortable initially with taking the job that his friend encouraged him to take for his firm. When he returns to Ganjin, part of finding his new purpose is to only ever accept minimum wage. You know, he sort of wipes the slate clean of his investment banking job, gives, sells everything he has, gives all of that money to the security guard's family. And then when he returns, I mean, as Veep has pointed out many times, he's very lucky that he has a house that was left to him <laughs> that enables him to kind of have a place to live despite only sort of working odd jobs and be, being able to pay for his needs. But there's kind of all these little threads and a lot of the works that we've been talking about, because if you remember in the last podcast, we talked about It's a Wonderful Life. And we're going to return to it at the end of this podcast, because in both stories, this one, It's a Wonderful Life, there's two men contemplating suicide on a bridge. If we also include the security guard who attempted suicide, all three of those suicides are caused by a financial crisis. Because in It's a Wonderful Life, it's a, it's a, it's a run on the banks and that basically everybody in town is going to lose their homes and the mortgage because of sort of a snafu with the bank deposits. And Shin Ha-un chose to model Jushik off of Thoreau what he said is wealth is the ability to fully enjoy life. He wrote, when a man has obtained these things that are necessary, he should focus his life on adventure in life. So basically the idea that like wealth isn't material, wealth is the ability to actually enjoy life, which is everything that Gamri is going to say at the end of this episode. 
And one of the things I discovered is Thoreau, when he graduated from college, he graduated from college in the middle of a huge financial crisis in the United States where everybody had lost their homes and there was like 25% unemployment. So I think it's really interesting how we have all of these heroes, real life or fictional, who are kind of marching to the beat of their own drum or facing these sort of crises and trying to decide whether to, they want to go on living. And it goes back to sort of what the widow says. It's like terrifying the power that money has. It's so true because there really is very like, you even, you think about the way that like visually they set up the, they set up our shots of the city in this kind of the heart of capitalism, money, all that kind of stuff. The colour tones are very muted. There's almost like, you know, there's a, not a falseness to it, but but there's like it's there's not life here, and then you contrast that with the colours that you see that exist in the village where people the the currency that exists there is it's friendship and it's connection and it's care and it's laughter and it's you know complex human beings and and conversations and you know, that's where all the colour is. And so I think whether we realise it or not, like we're, we're visually being told here that the, the colour is ex- and the life exists where the currency is what actually matters. And I sort of think like when, when you're looking at those kind of flashback scenes as you're looking at G6 Life in the City and, and you know, that whole time sort of back in that very capitalist space, it's not dissimilar to the colour palette that you see in the hospital. There's an element of deadness to it. And I think I think that was actually quite a clever piece of storytelling in the sense that we were we were being conditioned to think a particular way about these different environments in in a way other than just the acting, other than just the script. But yeah, it is it is really profound. And when when you see the fact is is that yeah, like wealth is the ability to enjoy life. I even think of like say the money that Jusit gave Doha's family. He he wanted him to not he you know it wasn't necessarily that just he paid the hospital bills. He didn't he didn't just do that. You know he paid Doha's education. He wanted him to go on and have a life, a good life where he could go on and do stuff. And so I think it's it's not maybe it's not necessarily wealth that's the evil. It's the power and the greed that come along with it. Yeah. Because I mean what is so interesting, right, is that in It's a Wonderful Life, you have a bank run, which you know is coming at the movies from the nineteen forties. So that's that's coming out of sort of the Great Depression, right? Movie ever um, made. I will fight people on that. <laughs> <laughs> and then Thoreau, he is coming out of what was called the Panic of 1837, which a transcendentalist writer writing today, Jim Sherblom, says, you know, basically you could compare to our 2008 recession. And you have Dushik, the event that kicks all of this sort of horrible chain reaction of tragedy is the market crash, right? And so... I was just thinking about this quote, and I just think it's really interesting because, right, it's all very intentional that Shin Ha-un chose Thoreau as sort of 
the, the model for Dushik, but one of the impetuses in addition to trauma that he chose to live his life is this writer says, it seems that Thoreau concluded that being financially self-sustaining while living for today was the only possible prudent policy, which actually as eccentric and unique as it seems to sort of live in the woods and make everything by yourself with your own hands or for Chief Hong to say, nope, I'm just going to do odd jobs and take minimum wage and just it's it's basically all I need to subsist is actually a pretty rational response to seeing the panic and chaos of an economic crisis, right? They, they, they're sort of like held up at the as these like eccentric exceptions to the way the rest of us live our lives. But when you think about sort of what Hong Dushik has been through as an investment banker and what Henry David Thoreau went through sort of graduating at a time of, a, of another financial collapse in the 1800s, it actually is pretty rational if you think about it, right? It <laughs> is. It's like, yeah. <laughs> it, it so much is. But the thing that's that's crazy is, you know, we talk about, in even here, you talk about the idea that power that wealth has. And along with that notion of power is strength. But in the end, the great the great downfall of money is its fragility, is a market's fragility. Like, you know, we look in, say, like the real world world now. You know, someone can tweet something about something and a stock market can crash somewhere. You know, money, mm-hmm. money for mm-hmm. all of the power it might seem to lend is wildly fragile and wildly fickle. And you're so right, you know, like it really does make sense, the idea of these people going back and that that taking the minimum wage. I think about, so my, my dad was a, what we call a chippy. He was a carpenter for a long time before he went into management. And one of the things that I used to love was how how proud my dad is of like the work of his hands. You know, there are other people, I, I think of the days in my own job, like that I spend in spreadsheets or doing whatever it is. And you sort of feel like you're just a hamster on a wheel kind of thing. But with with my dad, I used to love watching him go, there's a, there's a physical job that I got done, whether it's I installed a PowerPoint or I, I made a breadboard down in the basement kind of thing. But, but <laughs> yeah. you know, there's there's something there's something meaningful about this. This is the work of my hands and it's a tangible thing that I can I can contribute. And it's simple. It's not running a Fortune 500 company. You know, it's not making billions of dollars on a stock market, but it's helping and it's making a difference to someone. And like that's one of the things that I love about this community of people, whether it's a, you know, I think about that, that right right back on early in the series when, um, you know, Jusik is going around the village, you know, cutting this strange woman behind him, telling all the people, hey, just letting you know there's been a power outage. It's, it's, it's so basic. He's just wandering around in a pair of, you know, pair of flip-flops telling everybody there's been a power outage. Don't worry, I'll come around, I'll come fix that. Like he's just helping people and that that's an edifying thing to do. That is, it's, that's an honourable way of life. Yeah, so I, I, I love I love that element of this series. Honestly, it made me want to quit my job and just be like, I will go and work in a fishing village. The squid's a bit too far. <laughs> like, I can't stand yeah. the smell of squid. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, I'm so close. Like, just get me a pair of flip-flops and I'll just go down to a dock somewhere. Give me a job. 
All right. So the next conversation that we have is between Dushik and Sun Ha, his young's widow. First, I, I just wanted to ask you all, he, this conversation, like the one with Doha, comes to him. He's getting ready to take Haitian to go visit, I'm not sure if it's the grave or the memorial site for his friend. There's a lot of very intentional symbolism in the way all of these scenes are set up. But the first is the costuming. And that is Hong Jushik finally taking that suit out of the closet and putting it on to face the past. Any thoughts about that symbolism? I think there's that real element of the suit. It's him putting on an old life to reckon with it, to do business with it, so to speak. And the thing is, is like the Dushik that we've gotten to know doesn't wear that suit. That's that's not the Dushik we know. And so I think it is, it is you know, we've, we've talked a bit in, in this episode about the burdens that people carry. In some ways, seeing the suit be put on was quite a physical manifestation of I am choosing to put this burden on my own back again in order to deal with it. It's mm. such a it's such a physical, pragmatic visual <laughs> of of this man choosing to do stuff. And so I think it, and in a weird way, sort of looking at him, it's it's weirdly like a funeral suit. <clears throat> That's what I find looking at him. And I sort of had this moment when I was watching it. I was like, it's like you've chosen your own funeral suit because you're going to bury an old version of who you are, whether, mm. whether you realise that's what's about to come or not. And, yeah, I found that found that really quite moving I think because all like the three of us you know in the in the tv that we watch all these little details they're things that they speak to us but yeah it's it's a lot seeing him put it back on especially because now we have a lot more of an insight about what those things represent to him yeah I mean I love that he's opening up to Haitian you know, it's sort of now coming in this like steady drip because he's like, you know, this is actually the suit that he bought for me for my first interview. It's also the suit he wore to the memorial that he tried to go to and was yelled at to, you know, basically leave. So it's like he's f- putting it back on to finally do that. One of the details that I thought was so lovely is that Haitian says he will be happy to see you dressed up. And there is this thread that connects her and his young, and that they both talked about his grandfather in the present tense at both those memorial services. You know, his friend introduced himself to his grandfather as if the grandfather was still alive. Haitian introduced herself to his grandfather as if he was still alive. And now Haitian is talking about his friend as if he's still there. And I thought that that was a really lovely detail about, so 
sort of the the new family that Dushik folds into his life, talking about the family that's gone, but in a way like their memories are still there. Talk to me about your thoughts about Shonha coming to Ganjin with her son to see Dushik. I didn't expect this at all. This was one of the things I think that just kind of came out of nowhere in the show for me. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just I I wouldn't have expected to see that. And her coming in and then Dushik, of course, seeing this little boy. I mean, you guys... She's still calling him uncle and she's sending her kid right to him. And she makes the comment about not knowing, you know, where he had even gone. I thought it was really fascinating that she essentially didn't apologize. <laughs> she was grieving obviously, when she said what she said. But that's not necessarily a justification for having said it. Hmm. But the interesting part I feel like that she's probably come to in her own journey is this understanding that if there's anything about this that he's still carrying, it's not that he needs her forgiveness, but that he needs to forgive himself. Yeah. Because she knew, I mean, she knew then if she were being logical, it's not really his fault, but, but grief is not logical. And she was in the thick of it and it was right there. And it was like, there were two people that left that night. And now my son doesn't have his father and like, nobody's accountable for that. So that's, I mean, that's devastating. Of course, she's going to, you know, react to the person that was with him or the person that was closest to him, or to be frank, the person who was willing to take the blame, right. whether there was any blame to take or not. But I think it's kind of interesting that in all of these kind of reckonings slash reconciliations, if you will, there is an element of forgiveness here that is not sought or given because it doesn't need to be. Yeah, it's, uh, this is complex. So I love the point that, you know, coming, and again, this is something that director G sets into motion, right? This is the, the two conversations with the people left behind Doha and Son uh, are enabled because Director Xi, you know, g gives people pieces of information and then gives them the agency to come to Jushik, which they both choose to do. And, you know, Sun Ha coming to find him, bringing her son, which is no small thing. It, the amount of forgiveness and sort of contrition is, is it's like almost implicit in that, right? Because she comes to him, she brings his son, she calls him uncle to her son. 
and is like, no, this is a man who always doted on you and sang to you as a baby, right? And, and so that's how she begins. So she takes all of those steps. I will be honest with you. It took me a couple times to watch this scene. The first time I watched the conversation with the widow, I was expecting her to say that she was sorry. And I have and wanted her to because what she said was so awful and not fair. And particularly, you know, what she doesn't know is that he was suicidal. But when you rewatch it, knowing that it's just really hard. Um, but I, I, I ultimately have come to a place where I really appreciate sort of the complexity of it for a number of reasons. I think, first of all, it's because unlike the way things often play out on television in life, you're not always going to hear what you want to hear from someone. And then you're going to have to decide what to do with that. And so Dushik does not get from her, I'm sorry for what I said. He's still going to have this conversation that we'll get to in a moment with himself where he forgives himself. But the second is, I mean, Beep, to your point, what is there to, f- she, she doesn't even have the power to forgive him because it wasn't his fault. Right. Right. So she could have said she's sorry for her part. But what I think is really interesting is, What she says is, I won't apologize for what I did back then. I had lost the will to live. And that, but then what she says is, I don't resent you anymore. And that is really, I mean, and obviously we're going off of the the Netflix English translation, but I find that word choice really interesting because resenting someone is is putting her feelings completely in her own bucket, if that makes sense. Mm. She had a feeling about him because of the events that happened and that her husband was dead and he was the one who was still alive. And, and so it's it's like, it's very complex and it's very messy, but what she's essentially calling her own feelings about the situation is sort of implicitly by calling it resentment. It's, you know, like it, it's almost something that she is fully taking on herself. Does that make sense? It, it does. No, it, it totally I, does because it's like, she, she's almost saying in a way, I get the impression of course, that she's spent some time with this naturally. And, and what I kind of get from that is, I realized it's almost I, okay. Let me let me let me back up for a second. It's like Doha saying, "I just needed someone to blame." So in her case, it was almost like I just needed someone to point at because this was so unfair. There were two people in the car. It was you or him, and frankly, in that moment, I was upset that it wasn't you. So it was less even about blaming than it was just about saying like, this was a good man and he was a good, you know, like this just wasn't fair. And I had nobody to take that out on. But you, you think as well too, about the things that she said to him that she won't apologize for. And I think what's really 
what's really kind of profound here is, you know, we, we mentioned it a couple of times where we've talked about this is a complex situation. And I think sometimes even as human beings, we can oversimplify in the idea that we think an I'm sorry is going to be the thing that fixes a situation mm-hmm. here when it, it can be different to that. And so, and, and I'm sorry isn't actually the thing that needs to be said or necessarily needs to be heard in that moment. So you think of the things, say, that she said to Jusik and you think of the things that Doha said to Jusik and there's a real parallel there because they've gone to his character. They, they, you know, it's it's like saying this is who you are. I, when I look at you in this moment of my grief through the lens of through the lens of my grief, this is who you are. And what they're telling him he is is a horrible person. You know, it's it's a really terrible thing. And so in bringing her son and in calling him uncle and in saying, you know, he's, he's the one that used to dote on you and used to do all these lovely things for you, she's not necessarily I'm saying I'm sorry. She's actually saying something much more important to him in that, in telling her son that in front of him because it's like, this is this is the physical embodiment of the rem, of like part of the friend that he lost is standing there in front of him in this little boy. Mm. And so it's like she's saying I know who you are. And who she's you are is absolutely redefining his personhood. She is and she's redefining she's redefining her perspective in front of the physical embodiment of the person they've lost. And she's saying, who you are is not who I told you you were in that moment. Who you were is uncle who is kind, who loved him and loved that. So essentially, like I said, you know, a, a sorry I don't necessarily think was going to fix that. She, she owns the fact that she did what she did in her grief and she's not going to punish herself, I think, for what she did in her grief, even though there's a level of accountability that I think, you know, regardless of what we're emotionally going through, if we cause trauma to other people, I do think we still need to be accountable for it. So maybe there's room for a sorry, but perhaps the more important thing that needed to be said here, much like it was for Doha saying to him, you're not the person I thought you were and you're not the person, you're not the person I told you you were. I see the truth of who you are. And then she goes a step further Mm. because, you know, she says, and again, this is one of those things where it's like, I I wish we had somebody that could explain to us what was said in Korean because we're going off of the translation. But it's interesting because she says, so find it in your heart to forgive yourself as well. And so- there's a lot to unpack, right? Forgive yourself as well. I guess presumably she means I've forgiven you without saying it outright. And yet on the other hand, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like there's a lot to untangle, but the most important piece is that she is prompting him to finally have, like, remember when he asked Amory, am I allowed to do that? She's giving him permission and prompting him. It is time to forgive yourself. 
And remember, he ran away. So she has gone years not knowing where he is. Nobody knew where he is. Remember the the guy in the department store who was like, it's like he had seen a ghost. She had no idea where he went. And one of the things that I find so <sighs> profoundly sad is when they begin this conversation talking about how much the sun reminds them of who's gone. And they can almost sort of laugh about that he's stubborn, you know, that he doesn't like carrots, that he sleeps with his arm above his head. And that remembering of someone and having people who loved the person who's gone to do that with is such an important part of grieving. And they were robbed of doing that with each other, both because of what she said to him, but also because he ran away and hid. And both of them lost out on that. And, and I love I love to think about how they're going to be able to do that in the future because the little boy wants to see his Uncle Jushik again. But it's really sad to think about sort of the, the tragedy of the last few years that they, that they missed out on being able to grieve with the person who probably was the only other person that understood what they were going through because they were the two people closest to the person who died. Do you guys have anything else about the conversation with her? Only that I cried like a baby. Oh, I cry. I tell them I when about the. I'm just so proud of the, you saying a big dinosaur name. Mm. It broke me. Oh, and I oh. just thought like this. This little boy has like he has no concept of the emotional hurricane years long that has that has been around him. And like I've I've had that you know before where I've seen someone who's the child of someone who's passed away and there are there are moments like you know when when I look at the face of that kid and from for a second I'll see the expression of the person that's gone looking back at me and I can only imagine what that would be like if the person looking back at you is someone you loved deeply that you lost in a horrible circumstance and so yeah I just I found I found that moment like it was a lot. I like you know that moment where you've kind of got to pause sometimes because your chest just feels really tight and you've just got to take a minute because you think if if I don't take a minute here I'm not going to take in anything else that happens afterwards. But um but yeah, I thought and I thought it was really I thought it was really beautifully acted as well. Like oh god, I've got all the time in the world for Kim Seon Ho in, in how he portrayed this role I feel like yeah oh sorry Uh, yeah because we're we're gonna especially especially in this scene which is our second to last of these sort of conversations and I think I love that the show made time for the conversation that he has to have with himself and because uh, it's probably the most difficult thing that any of us have to do. And, you know, this is a, you have to think about sort of the directorial choices, right? Because how do you dramatize somebody having a conversation with themselves and forgiving themselves? 
And so tell me your thoughts before we dig into the substance of the conversation with this young. Talk to me about the symbolism of how all of this is staged, both who he speaks to and where it takes place. I think the the fact that this conversation like if you if you think about this version of like forgiving forgiving an old version of himself for what he's been through I think in some ways that person in Jusik's head has been a person he's been afraid of confronting for a while and I think it's I think it's really profound that it comes to him in the form of a friend, a friend that he loved and that loved him. And, you know, we, we never anticipate that the, the person we're most afraid of, which can be ourselves when we've got to reckon with something in our own pasts, whether it's our choices or whatever it is, that, that there's going to be an element of kindness looking back at us. And so I think, I think too the fact that, you know, this conversation, it occurs like on the beach. So many new beginnings in this show happen on a beach of a tide going in and out and of something just of a shore being washed clean over and over again. And, and I think there's something really beautiful in that metaphor because it's, it's like saying, you know, once this is washed up and washed over you and it washes back out again, it's not done once. This is a choice that you're going to make every day about being kind to yourself. And there's going to be moments where this comes back to you and you've got to just be gentle with yourself and, and let this go. And like there's a rhythm to forgiveness, I think, as well. It's not just a one choice, like one and one and you're done. It's 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 a it's a way of living as not just a singular choice. And so yeah, I found it I, I, it was such a, a a raw, humbling piece of writing with such great love and I think grace attached to it not simply just forgiveness but but grace and I think you know we've sort of as an overarching thing that we've talked about in this episode is how rare that is in television of these climactic moments being moments of grace and moments of conversation and reflection as opposed to something blowing up in the background. But, yeah, again, this was, this was a moment that I found myself as a human being connecting with the humanity in this moment and going, you know, as human beings it's so easy, I think, to be taught to punish ourselves for mistakes that we can't go back and fix and choices and things. It's not even necessarily just mistakes, sometimes things that have just happened to us or involved us and yeah I just there was something just so cathartic and loving about this and and I feel like so often too we see women having these conversations of, of mm-hmm. women being the emotional beings doing all of the doing all of the emotional heavy lifting so to see a man do this with such tenderness and vulnerability 
and and just I, I felt like it was like a, a nerve exposure <laughs> in some ways. Yeah, yes. And you could see that it was it was scary for him. You could see all these kind of things, but he he did it, and it was truly one of the most affecting pieces of television I think I've watched in a really long time. Not just television, I think storytelling in general, like massive. Yeah. Yeah, because it essentially comes down to these two actors. Um, and I am forgetting the name of the actor who plays this young, who's a theater veteran, and Kim Sun-ho. And it is, you know, the, the, the brother teases him about crying, but both men are crying at the end of this scene. The way that, the way that it was staged, you know, obviously the interior life of Hong Jushik was the central mystery of this show. When in the past we were let in to his, essentially his subconscious when he was dreaming, it was in utter darkness. The first time we saw it, it was a bloody hand without a face on his shoulder the second time, it was him facing himself, questioning whether he deserves to be happy. Now, his mind conjures the face and the voice of the person who he lost. And you can tell by his surprise, right? There's all these subtle details. When he says, I've missed you so much, and his surprise at seeing him that this is not something that his mind has ever allowed him to do. And of course, just sort of Aaron to pick up on the romanticist piece of it, of how many important conversations in this story take place outside Mm. and out in nature. And the the way that the sea is tied to sort of the character of Hong Jushik to the point that even when he was considering ending his life mm. in the city, it was to stand over a river because maybe the river could take him back to the sea. Yeah. Isn't it isn't it powerful? <laughs> yeah. I mean it's so uh, I don't I don't want to sort of dwell in that really hard or to like romanticize the sort of deep melancholy and tragedy of that. But, but this, you know, this is a character who is, because he's our 21st century Thoreau is tied to nature. Right. And so this reckoning and this self forgiveness, of course it takes place by the sea. Oh, and I think there's an element of wanting to be just clean. It's just it, like I think there's an element of like water has this idea of it washing us, of, of when we're dirty, making us fresh again. And the idea that every time whether he's whether he was standing over that bridge, he's wanted to be washed clean of his sins or whether he's been like you even think of when, when, he's, when we first meet him, when he's out in the ocean, water is his place that he goes to for relief you know, to go out for his his peace and his solitude. And there's such a there's such a natural rhythm and it's in the open air. And I I love the fact that, you know, these oh, really realistically, the, the vast amount of big conversations that are happening in this episode, they are in the open air. And there's a there's a like I've I found in this scene it was quite lovely because 
it's it's like he's gone through this refiner's fire and then on the other side of it there's this refreshed thing I love like there's a there's a line that this made me think of I'm trying to think of which one of the Lord of the Rings movies it's out of but it's one where um Gandalf says to Gandalf says to one of the characters I think it's Frodo where he just says breathe the free air that's what this scene really made me think of this is this is Jusik finally after all of this time and holding this breath of trauma this deep breath of anguish in he's breathing the free air out in the open in a space where he's essentially letting himself go under that emotional water and be washed clean and move forward I I, yeah I just found it and, and you know, there's there's none of that false kind of construct of the city around him. And you're so right. It is a really clever piece of storytelling here. How so often things that are the, the moments of revelation that they they begin in darkness, but they end in light. Mm. What I think is so interesting. So in order for us to, you know, I think it's obviously symbolically important that it's the person whose picture that he kept hidden in that book, right? His deepest trauma, his deepest source of guilt is the one who is the vehicle for this, for us to be able to watch this conversation of self-forgiveness. But, you know, when the young is talking, there, I think there are a lot of ways that you can interpret it. You can interpret it in terms of sort of spiritually, I'm sure, but but I am going to choose to interpret it that this is Dushik having a conversation with himself. And he says to himself in the Hyung's voice, remember what I said back then? It's not your fault. Which is something that his Hyung told him in the car before he died about the security guard. Yep. And he's finally letting himself years later hear it and process it right and Mm. then he says it's all right you survived yeah so carry on with your life which that line suggests how much of this is also wrapped up in the guilt of being the one who survived oh absolutely this is a huge case of survivor's guilt and i think too like he's looked back on his friend with this idea of the better man died, the the, the, the the good man died, why why is it me that's alive? And it's you used I because I, I think it's a I think it's a beautiful perspective and it makes so much sense to me the way the way that you've put that about him having a conversation with himself, but that the self that comes to him is with the face of a friend, not a judge. And it's with the face of something like, you know, and if it is a conversation with himself that, yeah, you know, it's one where he he knows on some level he wasn't responsible for that car accident. He couldn't, he, he didn't make that happen. It happened. And when someone is a, does have that survivor's guilt, the idea of going, you are not responsible for this part of it, let it go. There's a, there's a real leaning into a truth that he already knows, though, there that he's been afraid to hold on to. So, yeah. 
it's pretty pretty shattering but a, just a beautiful piece of writing like you know what it's like when you see that moment of television where you just think there's nothing else that needs to be done here to complete this scene everything that needs to be here is exactly what's here yeah this is unlike how this episode ends this was a death that was not in sort of the natural course of what should happen in life, right? It was a violent car crash. His friend died in front of him. He was verbally abused when he tried to go to the memorial. He never got to say goodbye. And so what his mind manifests for him, in addition to that self-forgiveness, is being able to see his brother's face again and say goodbye, which was his intent that day. He right, he was going to visit his brother's memorial. I think the writing also is really lovely and ties will tie into what Gamri will say at the end of the episode, because what is young essentially says to him is see and do everything you want until you're fed up. Right. What his young wants him to do is live his life so that someday, hopefully, when he's 80 something years old, like Gamry, he will look back on the times he spent with people he loved and the food that he ate and the places he went and the things that he did and think I spent I lived a good life. And when he says, let's go fishing after you've done all of that. I, I think back to the image of Chief Hong on the rocks, holding the fishing pole and reading Walden, which is a book written by a man who also lost his brother. And I sort of wonder what he was thinking about then, about what he didn't get to do with the person that he loved and he lost and imagining that someday if he gets to be with him again, that's what they'll do. It's really beautiful. Oh, it's so it's so lovely, and it's it's this idea that how to put it. I th- I think it's really interesting, like what people's idea of heaven can be, and it's not this celestial, palatial thing. It's just being with the people you love, doing something so simple, doing something just natural and normal every day and I I think all of us will have someone like that in our lives that we love and that we miss and that idea of thinking what what would it be like to just see them again and you don't you don't imagine them in some kind of you know epic film thing I think I just I just want a cup of tea with you in the kitchen and and I've I've that's what I miss and miss the everyday things. And so I love the fact that in this moment of self-forgiveness and letting go, he knows that there is something beyond. There's something beyond this moment. There's beyond the good lives. There's life beyond. And he's choosing now to go forward in it without continually looking back. Yeah, I felt, I felt that. In my bones. <laughs> yeah, it's just uh, if if we talked about sort of the climax of a television show, this is truly cathartic in sort of the 
old theater sense, right? <laughs> We've felt like all of the all of the things, all of the emotions. It's just really beautiful writing, oh, and beautiful like acting. You, you brought up "It's a Wonderful Life" before, like you know, I I think like I I think of Jimmy Stewart playing George Bailey and having that "I want to live." A mm-hmm. moment. That's what mm-hmm. this felt like for me, and I did not anticipate Jimmy Stewart coming back in the form of a Korean drama to make me feel that. Yeah, but that's Miss. Uh, that's Miss. What Mister Kim pulled off? Yep. All right. I want to move to the continuation of sort of Hong Du Sheik and Yoon Hyejin fully airing out the past as she had long asked him, we get sort of the final piece of it. And what I think is really interesting, and we're going to talk about the full scene of the two of them sitting in the dark by the lighthouse, including the part that was sort of cleverly left as a cliffhanger for episode 16, because I think it's really important as we talk about them grieving together in the next episode, that it is already settled that she's not going anywhere. So we're going to talk about the whole scene. And I think it's really important that Dushik fully airing out his past and telling Heijin the last hardest piece of what he calls his story is then what launches the conversation about their future both because I mean it was a decision that she already made right but she was the one that sort of kept saying like this is this is tied together like I and it was for him too right he was always stuck not being able to talk about the future because of what he couldn't share with her about the past she sort of repeats what I think is, and I think the two of them are tied together in many ways at the end of this episode, a sort of a passing of the torch of Gamri and Heijin. But Heijin says to him, it's good to see you smile, keep smiling, and don't think twice about whether or not you should smile or be happy. And, and that is essentially echoing what Gamri was telling him. Like, you have to live for yourself and not feel guilty about doing that. What I think is interesting is he Remember when he would have a nightmare and she would pat him on the back and be like, they're there and he let it slide and he didn't tell her the hard thing that the nightmare was about. Mm. Here she gives this beautiful advice, right? Which in, in some ways is true because no matter what's in his head, even when he hears the, those voice, you know, that voice of self doubt about whether he deserves it, what she's telling him is you just smile and enjoy it anyway and don't listen to those voices. On the other hand, he chooses to let her know just how complicated and hard that is for him from a mental health standpoint and decides to tell her the rest of his story. And I think, you know, sort of like Chohi. I think he both didn't have to do this, but also had to, if that makes sense. Do you guys have any thoughts about why he chooses to share this now and sort of how brave that is? I think, you know, when we were talking before, say about Doha, like Jusik has actually lived with the consequences of a half-told truth. 
he's lived with that. When you think, say, about Doha not telling his, um, you, you know, his mother not telling him the full truth of everything. And we, we've sort of seen the implications of what a half-told truth can do in the sense that sometimes it can be almost as unhelpful as either an out-and-out lie or an unspoken truth at all. And so I think he he is now starting to he's had a few things released, a few a few conversations now where the truth has been it's come out, it's articulated in full. And I think there's a thing that he'd been afraid of doing that he now knows he can do and come out the other side of it. And he loves her enough to go, whatever future is in front of us. I want to move into that from a space of whole told truth. And part of that is not just because he loves her either, but because that's the person he is now. That's the person, like he's he's gone through his, I think he's he's still the same person, but he's almost become a new, healthier version of himself with every one of these conversations he's having. So I love the fact that, choosing to fully tell her the truth of everything is not just a way of him letting it out. It's not just a way of him acknowledging his own trauma and beginning to deal with it. It's part of the way he tells her, I love you and I trust you. I trust you with the most broken parts of me. Because I think, you know, that that's a that's a huge part of what love is, like real true love. You know, true love isn't it isn't a Valentine's Day thing. You know, it's not a pink and fluffy thing that's gentle and breaks easy. It's um, it's also something that wades in and gets its hands dirty. And she has essentially done that with him where she said to him, I will come down into that swamp and I will be with you. But he's also said, I'm going to reach out from that place and I'm going to tell you everything. And it's an immense point of courage and love for both of them. And it's it's kind of it, it's it's the kind of storytelling that you think it reminds you of what happens if you're just brave enough to tell a story in its fullness. Because it's a way of him honoring his own journey, I think, as well. He knows that he can't heal from it fully unless he speaks the whole truth. So yeah, it's a big moment. This is also the the part of the story that belongs solely to him. Nobody knows about this. This isn't something that can be misconstrued. This isn't part of the blame. This is the fallout. This is his reaction. And I think that him telling her is incredibly, incredibly brave, as you mentioned, but also Aaron. And it's kind of like going almost back to Joe. He like, this is, this is a gift that he's giving her because there is absolutely no way this would ever come out or come back to bite him because literally nobody else knows about it. So this to me is the final piece of him sharing the story that is fully his. It's him giving himself to her and it is also him saying You've seen everything except for, in some ways, this very last and what he probably would consider worst part. 
I'm going to go ahead and lay that out for you as you've laid everything out for me and let it's weird because it's on one hand, it's let the chips fall where they may. And on the other hand, it's, I trust you. And I know this is going to be all right. Right. And then, and then it breaks your brain with the dramatic irony is not the right word, but she was there that night. (laughs) Right. (sighs) Tell me your thoughts about this performance is really, it's really, really hard to watch Hung Jushik at this, on this particular night. I think it's really important that they showed it so that we can sort of understand where his mental health journey sort of bottomed out and, and how hard and he has worked and how much he has climbed back from when we, you know, when we first picked up with him walking like so sort of jauntily and happily through the Gonjin market, we would have had no idea just like this show always reminds us what had gone on in his life. Talk to me about what pulls him back from this bridge. When he tells Heijin, he received this text from Gamri and he says, my life was so busy that I had no time for her. Actually, I had forgotten about her, but that text message filled with countless typos saved me. Sometimes there is nothing more important in life than knowing that someone is thinking about you. Because in that moment of him having forgotten her, he's essentially just lost everything and everyone. And I think that his reaction is understandable I think his action is almost oddly logical (laughs) but the fact that there's someone who's still out there who knows him as he was who is wanting to reach out to him who is saying to him without saying you know you you have value to me I would like to see you (laughs) It's just sometimes it's as simple as having that perspective from outside yourself to be able to, at least in that that one moment, find the strength to keep going. Oh, and, and I think too a big part of it is the idea of someone saying my my world matters with you in it my my world needs you in it and and i think like i i love i love the little interjection of like all the typos because it it it's the idea that something doesn't have to be perfect and i love you doesn't have to be perfect um in order to be powerful and enough and life-saving. And, and I think that there's this idea of that even when in our grief and our fear and our sadness 
we forget the good things that are out there, that the good things, that, that doesn't mean they've forgotten about us. And I just, I, I, loved, I loved that moment of, you know, him, him being so incredibly lost and it wasn't that a cop found him and pulled him back from the edge. And it wasn't even necessarily that Hejun did that either, even though that was a beautiful moment. It was that love, love from a wild distance away found him um, and, and came to him in exactly the moment that he needed. And I think as human beings it's so easy for us to be cynical about the the way the world works and what happens to us and what comes to us and when but i i think the idea of of you're so right beep about you know someone seeing us there's something so profound in being seen and the idea of that something is as simple as i'm thinking about you and you're here and i miss you there's there is i it's weird i, I go back to the um I remember when I was a kid growing up reading the the Narnia books and there's that moment where Aslan, Lucy and Susan find him the morning after and he's he's come back and he's come back from death. And there's that moment where he's like if if the witch, and I think of the witch kind of as almost as symbolic as like the darkness of the world, it didn't know the deep magic. And I think there is a deep, profound magic of the most true and profound kind at the heart of what happens here. There's no explanation as to why she chose to send that text at that moment, but she did. And, yeah, love love transcends and connection transcends. And, yeah, I just... Oh, that's a lot at 8.51 in the morning, kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's crazy is in that moment, I mean, you're, you're, in, you're in that that moment of tunnel vision, you know. He had, he had one purpose in going out there. This is what I'm doing. And without knowing or having any intention surrounding this situation because she was completely unaware she broadened the world for him a little bit. That there was more out there than just what happened this night, than just what happened to my young, than just what is happening on this bridge. And she provided in that moment not necessarily what he would have thought of as a way forward, but she provided in that moment a reminder of a place where he at least had a way to go on. And, and I think that, I think that's what he, he grabbed hold of. Yeah. I don't think he saw a way forward even then. I don't think like, you know, and, and we know that there's an underlying kind of an undercurrent to the life he's been living that's actually filled with atonement and with trying to make up for this all somehow. But 
what she gave him that I don't even think he might be fully aware of until right now was that opportunity to just find and have a place where he could heal because in soul and in in that mess his life had already ended so it was at that point it was just a formality jumping off the bridge would have just been the period at the end of the sentence the story was over that's so true and i think there's an element of which he was already in free fall he was absolutely already in free fall and you're so right talking about the idea of in his head you can see that jumping was just a formality. It was just part of the process that was going to happen. But what's phenomenal is that like partway through the free fall, she changes the places where he thinks he'll land. You know, in his mind he's like oblivion and the river and death Mm. is where he's going to land. And out of nowhere she is just this soft, safe, I'll catch you place to land. And you're and, and you're enough for me to reach my arms out and catch you. And you think of I, th- I think it's so funny, you know, you, you look at her and because what we know of her, you know, she's this she's this sweet, fragile old lady. She could be any of our grandmas, realistically. And we so often think of them as frail and 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 you know fragile and yet here she is holding out her love and it is the strongest gentlest fullest place for this man in absolute trauma to land and I love that about her I love that I I I love that her tenderness and her kindness and her full heart creates a space for him where even in free fall, in the most sharp, angular, bitter pain he's in. You're so right, babe. Like, you know, I don't think I agree with you. I don't think he actually has a way forward, but I think in that moment he gets a reason to keep his head above water. Because he would have yeah, just let literally. him literally. Yeah. He literally would have just let himself sink. Um, and mm-hmm. And so important now that I think about it, that he shares this with Haitian now, because she's about to have to help him through losing Gamry. And of course, I mean, everybody knows, right, what Gamry, you know, that he spends so much time with Gamry, right, you know, but I think it's really important that Haitian knows all of the layers of what she meant to him because in the next episode, we're going to have a really important moment about grieving tied to her that Heijin helps facilitate. And the way that he says it is he ties, obviously it's Gamri, but Gamri goes hand in hand with Gunjin. And he says that Miss Gamri and Gunjin saved me. And that's why I came back. 
And then we we get to see we see the the flashback again of sort of that hollowed out man returning, and he says, "I locked myself in that dark house," which has always served as a metaphor for what was going on with him. And then he talks about how they, basically, the origin story of Chief Hong, how they brought him food, how they checked on him, how they started asking him to do things, and he says, "I bet it was." intentional. And then Heijin says, so that's how you became Chief Hong. I finally get it. Which is such a, you know, we've moved so far beyond all of those debates they used to have early on in the story about why he lives his life the way he did. We could never could have imagined that it went this deep. But it is really beautiful in how it how it sets up what she's about to tell him, right? She brings up this sort of slow bubbling potential conflict that Shin Ha-un has been teasing us with that maybe Heijin's going to have, you know, that Heijin has the opportunity to leave Gonjin and go back to the city and have everything that she ever wanted. I love that Dushik is like, okay, I can wait this time. <laughs> Because I made you wait for so long. And she basically teases him a little bit with the idea whether or not she's going to leave. And then I I love, because I think we needed it, um, the touch of humor that when he doesn't get that she's talking about soul in the past tense, she calls him a dummy, which he has called her many times, right? Talk to me about the woman who he asked, and he may not even remember it, when he was crying drunk that night and said, don't go. And she said, don't worry, Chief Hong, I'm not going anywhere. Talk to me about both for her character and his, her choice to stay. I think think it represents both of them going how how to put it this idea of going me turning a new chapter in my life like I'm not who I was before I'm I'm this evolved version of myself and I think it's such a profound thing going I'm not going to wait for the life experience that turns my next chapter I'm actively going to do it I'm actively going to choose to move forward and I think as we've transitioned from thinking about him on that bridge to thinking about him now and even thinking about her, I think there's this element of going going from a place of not knowing whether I've got a way forward because we forget that's kind of where her story starts as well. You know, mm. she's, she's not sure how to move forward. She's not sure where to go. She just turns up and goes, oh, I just need a change. I just need something different just for a minute to clear my head. There's no forward momentum there and seeing these two people go we we choose to go forward and and make our own new start from the most honest space that we can there's something so challenging in that and and about you know when we were talking even before about um you know Jusik having lost his best friend, his brother, and and going through that process of not being able to grieve when he needed to next to the person who would understand the most 
what he was going through and and both of them really having that chance to understand what the person next to them was going through now these are two people there's there's that element of going I'm going to be honest with you I'm going to give you everything and we're, we're actively choosing to move forward now even if yeah. this first step you know I know it's sort of trite to talk about where they talk about the first the journey of a thousand steps begins with a single step kind of thing but people don't often talk about how that first step can be the hardest and the scariest um I, I love that about them and they don't have to be perfect they're people who've made mistakes and done stupid things and and you know, made decisions like we're we're all exactly like that. There's this real deep element of humanity that we can all relate to. I think, like even particularly when it comes to some love stories, I get really frustrated when I'm watching them, and I think, oh look, I'm great for you to have a happy ending or whatever it is, but I can't relate to your perfection. I can't I can't relate to this glossy version of a problem that you've overcome. I. Even though they are, yeah, even though their relationship is an, an, an ideal, but meaning one that we should try to attain. Yeah. Because there's nothing that is actually not realistic about it. Yeah. You know what I and mean? They, like, and, it's just hard. It's and just can, hard to be, yeah, emotionally vulnerable and honest yeah. and have this kind of intimacy. And they but can it's still not, be yeah. a goal to attain without needing to be perfect. I think sometimes we have this right. idea of goals being attached to perfection, like perfection is something that we can somehow achieve and get absolutely everything right. What I love about the pair of them is like, no, you don't have to get everything right. In fact, that's the point. That's the stuff that you learn from and that's the stuff where you're just like, I'm a mess, how do I get out of it? That's where you learn how to get out of a mess kind of thing. So, right. yeah. And and the sh- and the show did not go even though they tease us the show does not go for the cheap oh she goes to Seoul and then the finale it's like at three years later which I, I think some people were honestly worried when this left off on a cliffhanger instead we have this beautiful quiet conversation where they're sitting at night in this place where they first talked about Gamri back when. Dushik was trying to ask Cajun that first step of helping her community where they both bravely admitted that they loved one another and kissed for the first time. And now you have this really beautiful culmination of their intertwined character arcs where she's like, you were so brave for telling me all of this. And he says, I never would have been able to open up about it if it weren't for you. And she is talking about all of the things that are now important to her. Like imagine the Yoon Hae-jin at the beginning of the story saying that the things that are important to her were cleaning the neighborhood and visiting a hedgehog and talking about DOS with Jerry and that she's the one and only dentist in Ganjin. All of this was basically a culmination of the lessons that they taught one another. He taught her to embrace community and the unexpected. And she taught him to be brave and face the past and open up. And now that is what brings them to this moment of fully knowing each other and having this future together 
in Ganzhen, which is a place that Heijin now says that she's fallen in love with too. Heijin finally has the community that she never had in such a lonely childhood and packing her backpack to go to school by herself or when she lived alone in her apartment in Seoul and her only friend, you know, she only has one friend, Mison. She now has a whole community that she loves. And finally, Dushik has someone who's not going to leave him and is going to come and live in the place that gave him a life again. It's like, you don't get better writing with two character arcs in a romantic relationship than that. Well, <laughs> like you, you don't, you really don't. And that's the thing that I love so much about them is that there's that what, what makes them so beautiful and what makes you just want everything for them isn't just how they love each other. Isn't just in their chemistry. It's in how much they're, they're brave with each other and the space that they make for each other to be imperfect. And, you know, I think there's that consciousness that he has as well of going, you know, in being honest with her. Part of it too, I think, is him being conscious of I react a certain way about particular things because this has gone in and I care about you enough to want to give you context about why that might happen. And she's, she's, you know, she starts to do the same thing with him as well. And so I just found myself like, do, do you know when you have those moments with characters where you're like, oh, my gosh, I love them. I love them so much. And you don't think mm-hmm. you can love them any more than you love them. And then a scene <laughs> happens and you like, you just made how I loved you before look like it was, it was a crumb. <laughs> and now I yeah. just love you infinitely that's what I had in this moment and I'm like I'm I, you know that I, there was ugly crying involved I had like snot and everything I won't dress up how I was in this moment and I was just but like, they're also making me but they're also making me laugh they you are know? like they are because she's like you dummy and she's like oh you think I'd stay just for you right she's still our like you know feminist I'm not submissive type that's Asian. true and then trying to be all noble idiot like oh, yeah you should go you should go even though you see his face is like panic inside, oh, right? And, and, their, like, and, their, and their banter, like that was one of the things I always loved, even even when he was being an absolute smartass to her. That's the thing that I, I, I like when they were both being that for each other. But what, you, what mm-hmm. you really feel is like on every level that matters, these two are contending for themselves, for each other, for their relationship as equals. You know, I think so often some of the romances – that we see that are kind of put out there as, oh, this is what goals are, we we don't actually want to acknowledge that there's maybe a power imbalance there, mm. you know, mm-hmm. whereas here these are two completely equal human beings and they treat each other like that. And it is, you hear people talk about their partners. That's what this feels like. Mm. And, right. oh, God, now I've spoken about them, I love them even more. Oh. Well, I want to, I'm going to take the rest of this episode a little out of order because I think the, what the epilogue does and going into the next episode, and it's not just because I want to put off talking about Gamry dying, the, the flashback of the rest of that night on the bridge, I think there's actually a passing of the torch here between Gamry and Heja when it comes to that person for Dushik in his life. And what I think is interesting is, I know it's the 80,000th time that we brought it up, but 
in It's a Wonderful Life, when George is standing on the bridge, it's an angel that comes to him to remind him of the people who love him and what he means to his community. In Hometown Cha-Cha-Cha, it's two women. Obviously, Gamry reaching out to him, which stop him from going over into the water. But Heijin is the Good Samaritan, the nosy woman driving, which is so interesting, right? When you think about how she started the story and hating how nosy Dushik was. Well, she was always nosy. It's like he brought it back out of her because she was the kind of person who was driving on a bridge. And when she saw someone in a hospital gown, obviously not okay, she stops her car and calls for help. And she is the reason why the ambulance comes and people bring him back to a warm, safe place that night. And I think it's, I think it's interesting that in this story, it's two very simple acts, reaching out to see someone that you haven't seen in a long time, helping somebody who's a stranger that you have no, you know, no reason to believe you'll ever see again, that are what I think probably is the reason why Dushik woke up the next morning, still here. But also it's really lovely about how the story has all of these you know, we had sort of the plant that our father gave her and this luck of every seven years. And they they met every, generally kind of every seven years in their life. And in the last couple meetings, it was Dushik that helped her. But in this case, it's Heijin who helped him and was there in his worst moment. And they're probably, they will probably never put that together. And it it doesn't matter that they won't, unlike the other circumstances. But I think it's a really beautiful, both in how it's it's somebody we all can be. You know, none of us can be the angel on the bridge and it's a wonderful life. But we can all be Gamri and reach out to see someone that we haven't seen in a long time. Or we can all be Heijin and stop and help someone even if we don't know them. Yeah, just because it it doesn't end up being your husband or anything you ever hear about does not mean that those small acts wouldn't have made a tremendous difference. It the idea that it's that it's Heijin in this particular story is more just like a kismet, you know, lovers they're meant to be sort of thing. Like it it didn't need to be her. It shows something about her and it's beautiful and it's all that, but like it wouldn't have been to him, less impactful for what he received that night were it anybody else. Right. Mm. But I think I think there's that element of like amazing, extraordinary things can happen. You know, I think I think about the people that show up in our lives at a moment where you just think it, it might be that not necessarily that you're a person standing on a bridge, but you know, your cynicism about people might be at an all time high. You know, you might you might be someone who's like, I don't believe in happy endings anymore. Or, you know, like you could be in that place of thinking this is my only path forward and it's to cut myself off. 
And Mm. there's a lot of different types of bridges you can be standing on. There really, really are. And, you know, I think, and I'm going to apologize now for anybody that hasn't watched It's It's a Wonderful Life, but there's there's this scene where um, George, is, George is looking at, he's getting a chance to see what his life would have been like had he not, the world would have been like had he not been there. And there's this really profound mm. scene where the, the angel just is like, he's talking about his brother who was a war hero who had saved a ship with over a thousand men on it by, you know, because it was being attacked by by bomber planes he's like you know my brother was a hero you know there's this idea of the the better person is over here you know my brother was a hero he saved all these people and the angel is just like Clarence just says no every man died because you weren't there and I I think there's this there's this element of you're so right Beep. that's such a beautiful way to put it if there's a lot of bridges that we can be saved on Mm. yeah yeah this is a story that it has many, many, many things in common with that classic Frank Capra film. Mm-hmm. But what they both have in common thematically is that their hometown cha-cha-cha and It's a Wonderful Life are the opposite of nihilism. They both posit that what we do matters. Especially for each other. All right, I think we got to put our flowered big girl pants on to say goodbye to Gamry. I wanted to read portions of what Shin Ha-un had to say about her writing choice in Gamry dying in the script book. And then I, I'd love to hear about your thoughts about her dying. You know, obviously it's... We wish that she didn't, but what the writer was trying to get at in losing this character at this point in Hometown Cha-Cha-Cha. Shen Ha-Un said, Gamri's death was part of the plan from the beginning. Of course, I know that there are many people who want a completely happy ending. The music director threatened me that if I wrote the death of Gamri, he would play Romantic Sunday in that scene. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> as soon as i saw this i kind of want somebody to go oh no 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 we can't. oh my god I mean, what a play it backwards day. no right <laughs> play it backwards where she gets up and she lives again right in fact there was pressure to put a sad episode in the last episode which was not enough to be a happy one nevertheless we decided to go ahead with our plan it was because the death of gamry has a great meaning in the conclusion of the story Gamri is a wise elder of Ganjin. She was a fighter from the independence and a, a survivor of Typhoon Sarah. She's a living witness to history and their ancestor who endured for years quietly for a long time. She's a teacher who looks carefully inside people on the same road and hints at the way that Dushik should go. She is like a parent, especially for Dushik. But at the same time, she's also a person who will eventually have to part with everyone. She's already 80 years old. Gamry's death is not described as she was in a torment or in pain, but rather as a peaceful, beautiful picnic while sleeping. It is a very healthy and natural death. I think Gamry was happy enough with her life. I wanted to make you feel that death is not big and heavy. 
I wanted to give Dushik a chance to properly grieve and mourn. He had never cried out loud, even after losing his loved ones. Talk to me about sort of what Shin Ha-un has to say about death being a natural part of life. And, and sort of what Gamry's death means to the story here. I think there's an element here of life as a completed thing, you know, a life lived to its end and lived to its end with love and with hope and with care. And, and in the sense, you know what it's like when you get, you get to the end of a book that you think, I loved it. I loved these characters so much. But here in this moment, this is the place for me to leave this story. This is, this is, this is, the, this is the right place for this last chapter to be. And I loved the fact that as hard as it is to say goodbye to her, I think about, like I think about for me, I think how, how would I want to leave this life? And I mm. think the fact that she was flanked either side by her best friends and her last thought was of going to celebrate somewhere else. It was a beautiful day. And, you know, what, what's so amazing about that is like I think of um, – you think of all of these lives that these, you know, these people who've been alive around her but dead in part of themselves for whatever for whatever reason, whether it's been grief, whether it's been fear, whatever it is, they haven't lived life because of what's holding them back. And she, in her age, has come to a point where she's like, if I love you, I'm going to tell you I love you. If I think you're being a Muppet, then I'll tell you you're being a Muppet. Like, you know, she's, <laughs> she's, she's told them all these things. And I think, you know, I think of that notion of a good death. And I don't even necessarily in my mind couch it as death here. I couch it as going to her rest. And that that was a big one for me, and I and I love that idea of you know thinking about death not as necessarily something scary and final, but that idea of rest now, rest now, and that it's part of nature. It is which we have, yeah. And there's then you know there's there's this element of my story, my story here is is closed, and you know what I love too is like. Just like any great story, even when her book is closed, the echo of that story and her echo carries forward so that other people can still benefit even after her chapter's closed from the story she lived out. And Mm. there is such... As, as terrible and as painful as separation is, there's such love in that. That's one of the things I really, I really felt in this. Like I, it's sort of, um, I don't, I don't really like going back to, you know, parts of my life. But my grandmother was someone that I was really close with, and and I, I still grapple with losing her. And you know, it's, um, it's 14 years ago this year that she passed away and I still find it hard to go back to the days that she she got sick and she passed away it happened very quickly 
literally just she was sick under the clothesline one day and then three days later she was gone. And it was this person that, much like Gamri in this, you know, they're such a part of life around you. You never think that they're not going to be there. Um, mm. But, again, it's one of those ones where I couldn't find it in myself to when she passed away. I just kept thinking you lived your life until the end. And I found it really amazing that such a young person wrote that in this show. Mm. Yeah, because there's so much. If we can bring this sort of full circle, if there was a lot of sensitivity and respect and sort of beautiful writing for children at the beginning of this episode, this scene of these three old women having a sleepover and talking about getting old is so honest and very real. I mean, right. There's so much humor folded in this, right? These, these two friends that were arguing over Gamry staying with them because neither of them wanted to host her for a long time. As soon as she went back to her house, are are at her house to have a sleepover, right? And they're having these conversations where they're saying things like, I can't believe I'm over 70. Like, I still feel like a young girl that used to sneak around with my boyfriend. My body's aging and my heart still feels young. And that makes me sad, which is real. And what is so, I think, really, I think you rarely hear it, is Gamri says, I like that I'm old. I I don't, I, I at least in the society I live in, I don't feel like I hear that a lot. It's trying to fight aging in every way, in our appearance, right? And trying to fight against the end that, you know, this is Gamery's last night. And the way that she talks about what's important in life, it's so interesting because it ties back to what Dushik's young told him that how he should live his life or so much of what the theme of the show has been focused on. She's not thinking about how big her house was or how much money she made or whether or not she had a career. She's thinking about the beautiful places she saw, the delicious meals she had, the fun and good times she had with people, right? Like, that we saw so often laughing and sharing food with people. That's what she's thinking about on her last night. And what she's planning for the next day is more of that is, is a picnic with her friends It's so much wisdom and it's so beautiful. And when she says, look around closely and you'll realize you're surrounded by many precious things. It's probably something that we should like all type up and put on our refrigerator. Because it's like one of those things that you know, and yet the minute that you have a really hard day or like a really annoying day, it's like the first thing you forget. What she's considering as precious around her is not things, it's people. Mm. And they're, you know, they're, they're, you know, old, old ladies, sassy old ladies who love, who I like, I just, I live for their energy, you know, when they, they squawk and babble and, 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 you know, sass each other out. And, and the idea that ultimately in the end what's precious is those relationships 
that you hold on to and, you know, you realise that they've nurtured over time and they've poured work into. Um, and what a, what a beautiful thing for her to end with plans to do more. What a, what a beautiful thing. It's, it's kind of just like you could not have gone out on a peaceful, more beautiful high than that. And realistically for a character that we love as much as Gumri when she's given so much, it's like you can't ask for more than that for someone you love, let alone ourselves. Mm. No, because as, as happy as it has been, I mean, or as happy as you know the ending of the show is, or the messages are, or the fact that they're they're trying to provide hope and community. I mean, there's there's a lot of death in this show, and that's part and it's part of life for sure, for sure. Yeah. I at first. Because I know you, you watched it live, CC, and you said that people were so upset about that. And obviously, even in Shen Haun has has mentioned it. And I I don't think I want to go so far as to say that she had to die. I, you know, I, I I don't think I need to go that far. But as much as I cried and maybe threw some stuff, <laughs> I I mean. This is weird because we've been actually talking about it the whole back half of, of this episode. This was a gift for her character. I think. I, I mean, that's the way I see it. It's like you said, Erin, like, good job. Yeah, like you've run the race. Time, yeah, you've what? Time to rest. Yeah. You have fulfilled your purpose and you have eaten your squid. Yeah. And even though you don't know it right this very minute, that's the only thing that bothers me. I'm like, he didn't get to talk to her. Okay, yeah. whatever. But even though you don't know it right now, you have already passed the torch mm -hmm. and your son slash grandson, he's okay. And he's going to be okay yeah. for the first time in his life. So sweet, sweet lady. You can go. Yeah, and I think she, I think that it's so important exactly what you say there because when you go back, you, you're so right, this show does have a lot of death and I think if there hadn't have been a death that said not all death is like this, not all ending of a story is, is like this when a life goes out and a light goes out, I I it. And you're so right, like, you know, where you talk about the, the idea that it is part of life. Death actually is part of life, even when it happens unexpectedly. And and I just think like there's something really there's some there's there's balance. I think like one of the things in, in this episode, there's so much that's come to be balanced that was unbalanced before. And I think leading up to this point, death had an imbalance of darkness and here as, as hard as it is to say goodbye both the character the pe the characters around her and us as the audience are presented with a rebalance that is extraordinary and profound and complete and we don't always get that oh i'm and fine you know I, 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 as as you're as you're talking about it a piece of it, a piece of this is that it is a 
a, a peaceful, non-painful death in her sleep, right? Which is all anyone could ask for to leave this world. The other piece of it is unlike all of the other deaths or almost deaths in the story, she is surrounded by people that she loves and love her. And then what her death enables the storytellers to show in this series finale is what it looks like when people grieve together. That if death is an inescapable part of life, community and grieving together, particularly important when we were watching the show live and a pandemic prevented us from doing that. I think it's, it's a really important message of the show because the series finale begins with a community mourning together in a funeral and ends with a community celebrating a wedding together. And those are the two bookends and they're equally important community being there to celebrate and community being there to mourn together for all of those reasons you know as much as it is really hard and painful to watch because Gamrie feels like all of our grandmothers i think it's a really beautiful part of the story it is and you know you bring up specifically the community grieving which i, per I personally hadn't like really connected that much before but as you're saying it i'm thinking Look at all these examples we had before. You have Doha. You have Director Xi in a way, even though he was a little bit disconnected to it. You have the Hyung's widow. You have Dushik. You have Hei Jin with her mom. All of these people throughout this entire story have had to face the death, the tragic death of a loved one alone. Right. Or, or cut off from one another because of angry words, right? Sure. And so often yeah. death here has been represented as an ending of something, as, as, a, as a brutal kind of cut-off point that these people have suddenly like, you know, almost like a, a weirdly cauterized wound, you know. It's, it's been so brutal in the way that it's happened. And I think that's why it's so important actually that Gamre's story finished like this because it's a reminder that death doesn't necessarily have to be an end point for life. It's a doorway. Mm -hmm. And I think about what it is like for not just not just for like this the central characters of, of Jusik and Heijin. I, I look at everybody around here. I feel like Gamre's life becomes like this beautiful arch this beautiful archway of extraordinary beauty and light that all the people that were behind her are now walking through to get to the next part of life. Mm. And, and, and the fact that going under the archway of the grief and the sadness of missing her is, is part of that journey that enables them to move forward because realistically in losing someone they love, there's also that element of while I've still got these other people here, I'm going to value them. 
I'm going to tell them that I love them. I'm not going to, I'm not going to waste the opportunity to say you're precious to me or spend time with you or, or, or that kind of thing. It doesn't mean you have to get everything right. Nobody ever will. But there's that idea of I value you a little bit more today than I did yesterday because of this example that's been set. Like what, a, what an echo to leave in the universe for the people you love. I just, yeah, I will love this character. I think, you know, you look back at all the stories that will have ever impacted any of us, whether we read it, wrote it, heard it, whatever it is, she is one that will stay with me for that reason, for the echo that she leaves behind because I think that's a challenge to all of us in how we live. And in coming to this conclusion, I will (laughs) go back and dispute one thing you guys have said as being terribly incorrect and that is it was in fact an angel that texted Dushik that night oh okay (laughs) you had to say that when I had no tissues even vaguely Uh, because that woman was an angel this whole damn time oh yeah Yeah. oh Aaron thank you so much for being our therapist slash poet slash dear friend around the world to process for many hours this well just one of the great beautiful episodes of television thank you so much for for spending your time with us. thank you for the privilege it's been to go back and sit in this story with you that I, i i it's one thing to be sitting on your own in a living room falling in love with characters and loving them and going through their journeys with them but for ones like this and particularly stories as precious as this that you want to go, the experience of them is so beautiful that you want to go and share it with other people. It is just, it's such a joy for me to have gotten to do that with two of my favourite people in the world. So thank you. Mm. Thank you for letting me be here with you for this. I loved it. Every second, even the seconds that I snot cried and that is now. (laughs) (laughs) This shirt's going in the wash, I'm telling you. I just want to say just uh, cry. Can <laughs> look we at look at one sh- out for the mute button today. <laughs> I know Shinha Un and Gamri and Dushik making us cry from the United States all around the world to Australia <laughs> together. <laughs> Do you have a favorite quote from the show you can think of? It's if right before Gamri passes away and she's talking about the picnic and. I just think what an amazing thing it is to meet that moment of life that realistically scares all of us somehow and to have hope that there is something on the other side of what's scary. And that moment will sit with me for a long time. And so, like I said, like I I remember sitting here watching this and being an absolute (laughs) ugly mess in my living room but you two are two of my absolute favourite people in the world and I feel like it was such a gift to me to go back and sit in this episode and to sit in this series again realistically because it took me back to some places in my own heart and my own mind and my own human experience that I maybe needed to go back and sit in and and deal with them myself and it is a gift that I neither expected nor feel slightly worthy of that I that I've gotten to do that and talk to talk to both of you about it. So 
thank thank you for putting up with my rambling. Um, uh-huh. yeah. Stop it, you brilliant weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> Put him, I, I want to put that on my epitaph. Here lies a brilliant weirdo. <laughs> I just I just love you and I'm sitting here getting teary and it's hilarious because I'm not even crying about the episode anymore I'm crying about us because I just think I just think it's it's such an amazing thing you know all of us are separated by such a formidable distance and I don't think we ever expect the angels that are going to be on the bridge in our lives and I think both of you in Mm. your different ways I don't think you ever really know that you've been angels on the bridge in my life and so Thank you for being those people for me. And I love that we got to talk about this in the context of this story in particular. So if you are listening to this, there are three very, very teary human beings right now. But, oh, um, God, quick, just tell me your favourite outfit that Dushik wore because everyone's sobbing. <laughs> my favourite outfit that he wore is his face. That is my favourite thing. There is no thing he can put on his human physical form that is any – a smile. That man's smile, like you could not send him to an ice cap. He would melt it just by smiling at it. It is too much and I just, I go to the end. It, it, it is one thing for a man to be, quite honestly, that Jesus take the wheel beautiful. But it is another thing altogether for me to just go, oh, my gosh, and you're an amazing human being as well. How dare you? Um, oh, my God. And, yeah. That was a seamless transition. <laughs> oh my God. So for climate change, Mr. Kim Sunho, please stay away from the North and South Pole. Yeah. <laughs> Don't go outside and look at any ice. <laughs> I, I hopefully now people are laughing instead of crying in public. Yeah. So beef, we better end it here. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> we, so. we, we love you, Miss Erin Brown. <laughs> we are almost there. The next one is the last one. Uh, Tony will be back to talk about the series finale of Hometown Cha 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 with us. And until next time. I don't know. I'm crying. I have to go. Oh, baby. <laughs> Till we'll then. I love you. See you soon. I love you. I love you. I love you. That's what I'm ending with. I love you. Let's go to a picnic. <laughs>